Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. This is season four, episode four, our big review episode for Mariel of Redwall. You know us as the Redwall Read Along Podcast, and this is always our big episode at the end of the season. I can't believe we're towards the end of the season four. Uh, we got a a good group here today. Trevor, Trevor, he, Trevor's here. Trevor, how you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. Uh, also, we have William here with us today. William, how you doing? Woo! Doing good. Doing great. <laughs> Ready to talk some some Mario. Unfortunately, we don't have Tiff here. She has a personal conflict, so she wasn't able to record. Uh, but we wish her well, and we're excited to talk to her a little bit more about this book in our uh, future review episodes. So um, we'll look forward to having her company again. But we have a lot to get into <laughs> with this final review. I always got to ask, like I do, how are you guys doing? What any any fun things that you've been reading? I have actually been in a little bit of a reading slump of sorts. Uh, just in that life has been a little bit busy. And so I haven't devoted myself to as much reading. Although I did finish volume one of the manga Superman versus Meshi, which is basically just a bunch of comics where Superman flies to Japan to have a whole bunch of Japanese food from a random chain restaurant. It is the weirdest and most hilarious Superman story I think I've ever read. I can't wait for the DCU adaptation for that. It's going to be incredible. <laughs> is he? So it's a versus book, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> it's called like a versus uh, because it's not like Superman fights any of like the noodles or anything. <laughs> Maybe it's more like he's fighting a losing battle against his cravings for more Japanese food. But okay. it's just absolutely hilarious. There's one whole episode in which Superman sits down at a uh, turntable kind of sushi bar and he's joined by aquaman who can still talk <laughs> to the dead fish oh, no. <laughs> and all of the dead fish are smack talking superman's sushi choices for the evening it is the weirdest little combination but it's very very funny and i really enjoyed it this sounds incredible. This might be the most interested I am in DC in a really long time. So <laughs> I am all for it's it. It's certainly awesome. some of the best Superman stuff I think I've read in a very long time. I feel like Superman's hard to write about because everybody gets caught up on like, he's so powerful, he can do anything. But I think the answer to that problem is like, just have him go out for sushi for his friends like you know like make the conflict about something else like yeah sure superman can fly around the world in three minutes but can he actually wait 30 minutes for his rice to cook that's where <laughs> the actual conflict is that's incredible i gotta check this out i don't know how i don't read this this sounds like <laughs> it's a must read uh what about you william um yeah i am as always, it feels like chest deep in just horror stuff. Um, I've got a good one-two punch going right now. I've got Ross Jeffrey, who, if if you've never read him, he is just the king of grief horror. 
uh he writes tormented main characters like nobody else um but i've got his book i died too but they haven't buried me yet which i mean if the title doesn't sell you on it uh, that's that's there's the premise for you um and it's so good i'm i'm only a few chapters in but he's he is doing so much character building that i adore him for and like the i can feel the roller coaster going up the tracks and it's about to hit that first hill and i'm just i'm i'm there for it um and in the back burner with that um i've got josh mallerman's incidents around the house um arc sitting on my nightstand which is insane to me um but apparently the two of them were like writing buddies as they went through it um as as ross wrote uh i died too and as josh wrote incidents around the house they were sending each other chapters back and forth and kind of doing that old school twainy thing um where where you would write a chapter or you would write a segment and you would send it into the magazine and then everybody would read it and then oh my goodness here's where i think the story's going and you kind of give each other feedback and then you write the next section and just blow everybody's minds again with the twists and the turns so it it's cool kind of going into the story knowing it was developed that way and kind of seeing the ways that they might have played off of each other i don't know I, i'm a super nerd so thought exercises like that are just weirdly fascinating to me that's awesome i love those titles too those are super catchy um yeah definitely definitely some great titles well we're here to talk about a title in itself uh mariel of redwall boy do we have some thoughts about it so what do you guys say we jump right in let's do it Let's do it. So to kick us off, we always got to kind of talk about the highlights and the lowlights before we get into um, some of the official rankings, which we'll do a little bit later on. So I want to start off with the positives on this book. And uh, guys, I know you have some really great thoughts on this. Um, So let's hear them. William, you want to start? Sure. Um, I'll throw one out that I know y'all have already covered, but it's just thinking back on this book it is the scene that is going to stick with me um the long patrol the that final charge in to save the last of the uh the the ore mice i i forget what the proper term for them was but the the enslaved slaves yeah or slaves um (laughs) going in there to save them with the bows drawn with the long bows drawn there's so much about that scene that is just amazing jake's at the top of his game from the descriptions of the ways that the long patrol is just obliterating these bad guys to the way that it's not clear right away that this is like a suicide mission on their part and the way that he slowly reveals that and you like you realize it as they're going through and a couple of them get mortally wounded and they're like yep this is it you as the reader are right there with them like oh no this is it um and they're still battling uh it just everything about that scene was epic in every sense of the word uh and 
unfortunately, there's not a lot else about this book that I would describe that way with that much love, but that scene gets it. You know, I, I'm with you in that. I, I feel like as I reflect on this book, highs and lows, and, and I'm sure we're going to go back and forth about some of the same stuff. I felt like my highs were all book three. I don't know that there was a single chapter in book three that I was disappointed by. I felt like from that point forward, the whole book came together for me in a way that was deeply satisfying. But then the low is like all of book two. I don't know how much of book two I really enjoyed. And I feel like book one was just kind of in the middle there somewhere. Um, neither too high nor too low. Mariel's quest was so boring and so just uh plotting that it sucked any of the momentum out from the rest of the book i think if we look at the actual parts where gray patch is like attacking redwall and his particular siege i don't know that there's anything in there that i thought was bad and i thought there were some ideas that jake's put in there that were really striving for excellence. Um, you know, for for example, uh, what was his name? Sam Kim? No, Saxus. Saxus. I'm I'm confused. I'm already confusing characters. <laughs> Saxus. Um, the moment that he learns what war is, and the the immediate regret that Saxtus feels over having not just killed someone, but also had to witness so much death. I feel like there's elements in there that, that are really, really great. And I wanted the book to do more of that ground, more of the experience there, but it seems like Jake's pulls way back out the moment he starts to develop something really interesting there and then switches us back to Mariel and Danden, who I just thought were some of the most boring characters. So it felt like a very frustrating book for me. Yeah, I, I totally agree with what you guys are saying um, with the long patrol. It's definitely the climax of the book. It really feels that way. Um, I feel like it's incredibly gripping and um, it's like Jake's is a complete different writer during that um, that event. Like his vocabulary is a lot more um, uh, precise and violent. Um, There's there seems to be more of a weight in in the in his prose and um, the realization kind of what you said, William, that you kind of realize that they're not coming back from this. It's it's extremely powerful. Um, Same kind of thing with with Saxis where he has this human moment where he's like oh my gosh i just killed someone what the heck um those those moments are so good like i i really enjoy those a lot and i think we really don't see a whole lot of moments like that in the prior three books i can really only think of maybe one or two but this one seems so much more intentional and impactful that uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I think Gray Patch is great as well. The 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 constant battle um, or, or tension between rat folks is like a really cool part 
of this book. I just can't believe that we didn't get more like pirates on, on the water kind of a thing, you know, like so much of that felt like it was missing from what I thought this book was. Um, I, I liked the stuff that we got with gray patch and I think that that kind of supplements it. Um, but it is not at all what I had initially thought this, this book would kind of be. Do you guys have any other highlights that you'd like, like to talk about or should uh, we know, jump while, in? While we are talking about it, I do want to talk about uh, the death count for this book because yeah. you know, normally I make a game out of it. Like, um, But I do want to kind of pose, I guess, the, the question before I reveal the number. You know, I know Colin already knows this number, but William, where do you think this ranks in the four books that we've read so far in terms of its violence? I'm so bad at this game. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here here's my logic. I'm I'm going to I'm going to try to actually think through this for once instead of just blurting out a random number like it's mm -hmm. a like it's a dice roll. <laughs> um okay. So there were seven ships. One of the uh, seven seven enemy vermin ships. One of the ships was Gray Patches, and Gray Patches' army was described as being about a hundred strong. So if I take that number, and I know that everybody from Gray Patches' regiment is dead, and I know that all of the other ships get destroyed, get sunk, get taken down at Terramore, everything else, that puts us at a seven hundred vermin death total just with the boats and then we start thinking about like okay a couple of the red wallers got felled and as mariel was traveling that was a little bit and there were all of the all of the creatures staging the resistance at terramore i'm gonna throw out a what feels to me like a stupid number but i think it's justified <laughs> can i say 900 I feel like you're not far off, man. Hey! <laughs> okay, so there's, as always, right? There's like the actual deaths. Like we can count these as bodies that are explicitly put on the page. And then there are the kind of implied number of deaths. You are like basically right on the money in terms of the implied number of deaths in in actual deaths in actual bodies that we can count described on the page. It's 174, Jeez. which is absolutely way more than any of the other previous three books. I mean, even even counting for that final act in Matameo, uh, Ron Blade tips the numbers absurdly. <laughs> like Ron Blade himself tips the numbers so far out of whack because he kills a hundred different sea rats. Um, and we know explicitly that he kills every single one of them because we're we're shown the grisly bodies. But yeah, the implied total is anywhere between 709 and 891 that I counted up. So I feel like 900 is absolutely within the ballpark, which makes this one of the bloodiest books in the series to date. Um, and in fact, this is the bloodiest book in the series to date if we count Ron Blade's body count alone. Um, which I think, again, gives me such a kind of 
out of balance view of this book because I, I, I think that as violent as it was, it is still startling to me how much of the book also feels like it's just so dull. Like it just yeah. can't figure out exactly what its narrative is supposed to be. So we get these flashes of incredible violence and parts of where I think you're right. Jake's has completely leveled up his game in delivering some of these ideas. The, the last stand of the long patrol is one of the most harrowing reading experiences outside of Malchris so far. And yet it's saddled with so much pacing issues and so many other, I think character issues that plague this book. So for me, looking back on my almost 30 year relationship with this book, it's kind of striking to me how the most violent book so far has been the book that I have felt was most forgettable. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that it's shocking to hear you say that about the death count because I would not describe this book as violent. I, I just I wouldn't compared to the first Redwall book which I would say is incredibly violent. And I think part of that may also have to do with the gravity of the, of the quest, like, or the defense of Redwall. Like, I honestly think that Mariel's quest is so forgettable. Um, besides a few standout characters like Bobbo, I loved Bobbo and I loved Bobbo's story and it's told overnight and then it just kind of ends. You know what I mean? Like, I really wish that there was way more of that in Mariel's story that helped to contribute to the hero story, but we don't really get that. It's it's very meandering. We we have some things that happen, but honestly, if someone told me, you know, uh, uh, gun to the, to the head, you have to tell me what happened in Mariel's quest, I'd be dead. I don't, I don't know what to, I just couldn't <laughs> say anything. I don't. I couldn't piece it together in my dumb, dumb reader brain to, to say what the quest was. Um, I just, it's so forgettable to me and it's really disappointing because, you know, we all just said what our highlights are of this episode or of this book. And we haven't mentioned Mario at all. I don't think a single person said that Mario was, that was a highlight. And this is, it is this is her book. <laughs> you raise a really great, problem there i think and this is something that his young readers um really took i i think took jakes to town over um he wrote mariel of redwall to address a growing girl readership because jakes did have a very dedicated and devoted um girl readership and Yet we don't see very many characters, um, you know, girl characters that I think carry the same kind of weight as the male characters in this series. I don't think that's always going to be true for it. And I think that Jake's corrects the course a little bit with some later books by incorporating stronger uh, girl characters, stronger female characters. But I think that, Mariel of Redwall was very dissatisfying uh, to a lot of readers. I wish Tiff were here because I would really love to hear some of her thoughts on this. But 
Um, I I remember reading just not too long ago an article about Jake's series um, from a woman who was reflecting on her experience growing up with it. And he she says that she remembers writing Jake's a letter specifically asking him when was he going to make a a girl mouse or a girl creature the hero and the spirit of Redwall? When was he going to give a girl the sword? And he replied back saying, well, I already did that. Did you read Mariel of Redwall? I really like that book and you should read it. And that was like the source of her frustration because of course she had read Mariel of Redwall and Mariel is not given over to the warrior of Redwall. You know, she's not named the uh, the warrior at any point in time. Um, even the title Mariel of Redwall doesn't really quite hold up because Mariel doesn't even stay at Redwall. She doesn't yeah, reside I'm there. So true. Yes. Yeah. So it's, oh. <laughs> it's like, it's super frustrating that the titular character, you know, isn't given the sword, isn't really made even the focus of her own quest, isn't even the lead protagonist. You know, at the very end of the book, I feel like any of her revenge is swallowed up by Ron Blade and mm -hmm. then Andin who and Danden does nothing in this whole book. The only thing Danden do, does at all is skill kill Scrablag. That's the only thing that Danden manages to affect in the entire story. And so it feels like he does like... that and and pisses me off. That's really the only two things that he does. <laughs> I I just well, I'll get more into why I just really dislike Danden when we do our our character ratings. But you're completely right, Trevor. He does not serve the purpose of the story at all. And him even being the sword bearer, I think completely steals the spotlight from Ariel. Like, I don't mm. know why. And, and I'm probably projecting a lot of frustration on <laughs> Danden as a character. But he really doesn't do anything to serve the plot at all. I, I argue he does nothing to serve the plot. Um, William, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at your notes and you have a great note on Mariel's character development. Oh gosh. I I want to click over and like look through the notes and see exactly what line you're talking about, but but first Oh, I, I can read it. I've got it right in front of a, me. There is a character just assassination of Mariel that happens when she walks in Redwall. She enters the abbey as this really cool character that I would have loved to spend time with. This feral like jason Bourne doesn't remember where she came from is on some sort of a quest for vengeance that even she hasn't discovered yet there is so much about that character that is cool and then she gets scrubbed up in a bath and cleaned up <laughs> they do like a dream sequence thing just to like throw all of her backstory at the wall so that like any mystery or suspense around it is gone they do that so that they can then ignore that backstory for the entire second act. Joseph, the bellmaker, and her father that she's so like focused on saving never gets mentioned in the second act. She forgets that her dad exists when supposedly that's like her point for being on the quest. 
and they just they just take all of the interesting edges off of her and cast her back out into the world with Danden next to her. Yeah, she she doesn't even get the moment with her father because it's overshadowed by Danden meeting, you know, part of uh, what is it called? Uh, the uh, Terramore um, Targ tag. What is it? The Terramore Allegiance yeah, group. Tag. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Oh, man, the robot's going to have to jump in to, to correct <laughs> what it is. Um, but uh, I think it's Targ. Terramore against Gabul. Tark was Tarquin, though. You're right. There was some kind of a weird acronym. Uh, Island Quorum. Can you call him that? <laughs> yeah. The Island Quorum. <laughs> Nautical Quorum. We'll cut all this flipping through the pages <laughs> out. Maybe we won't. People can look behind the, the screen a little bit to see how... Hard notes just go out the window once we finish a book. Uh, it's funny because I, I finished my notes and I'm like, all right, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, well, I will say this is a fun fact. Ron Blade's sword is named Vermin Fate, which I think is like the third named weapon in the series. Is it Trag? Terramore Resistance Against Gabool? It's the Trag. Okay. Trag. I'm okay. Pull, I didn't actually find it, so I'm just pulling that out of my butt. Um, but we we are overshadowed by Mariel's reunion with Joseph because Danden's making some friends with Trag. Like, it's so <laughs> infuriating that the focus, you're totally right, uh, William, that Storm Goldwacker gets a bath and is turned into Mayor of Redwall, and she becomes the most non-interesting or uninteresting character I think we've seen in Redwall. I honestly think it's if I was a if I was a kid reading this and wanted to have a, a strong female protagonist in Redwall, I, I think the the person writing the Jakes is completely justified in saying they didn't really get what they wanted. Um. Santa did not bring presents with this with this book. And I think that's where a lot of my frustration really lies with this. We'll get into it more when we do the reviews for sure. Um, but I can't really stack it up very high because of it. Like it, it really drops. Jake's drops a ball in so many ways. Um, but it's conflicting because some of my favorite moments in Redwall have happened in this book, like the the mm. uh, last stand and, and Bobo. I, I genuinely love those stories. But it's just surrounded by so much. No, I, I think you're right. It's so weird because uh, as I was explaining in our summary breakdown, some of my most, like the most memorable moments of a defense of Redwall occurs in this book. Um, the, I remember the Long Patrol. I remember specifically them coming and teaching the Redwallers how to craft long bows and I remember the Long Patrol making a dramatic stand. But if I had not just reread this book, I would have told you that it came in any of the other three previous books we've read, or I would have put it in any of the books to come. It did not remain in my memory that it was from Mariel of Redwall. And I think that subconsciously i just completely erased this book from my mind because 
Um, there's just so little else that I feel stands out about its identity. I and I want to I want to talk crap about Danden, but William, <laughs> go ahead. We got to talk. We got to talk about Danden when we do the character um, rankings. I don't know how out we. I mean. I gotta get stuff off my chest about Danden, guys. I do. I really, I really do. So we gotta. I need that time to vent with you, Trevor. We'll do it then. <laughs> well, I think something that frustrated me so much about the book was that there were so many standout things that if Jake's had just continued them on, they could have been really cool. But he kept for whatever reason, seemingly changing his mind on things once he started them. So um, let's talk Gabool for a second. Mm. Gabool's introduction. Uh, let me read this sentence again, because I read it and I just couldn't <laughs> believe this was in a Redwall book. Gabool sprawled on a hard rock throne, which he had made more comfortable by covering it with the skins of his slain enemies. Guys, we so have good. we have a carcass throne. <laughs> we, we have a dead body's throne, and somebody like crazy enough to sit upon it. And instead of leaning into him as a villain, we're just gonna get a bunch of random asides where he's losing his mind. And yes, he wins a one-on-one -on -one duel with one of his captains and does a couple of mind tricks to to get people to go out ship shipping for him um but then instead of actually focusing on him we spend the vast majority of the book focused on gray patch colin to your theory i think you're right gray patch is the actual villain of this book but gray patch is never established as an actual threat yeah. he's constantly being undermined He's constantly like losing his crew's confidence to anybody else among mm -hmm. the crew. And just it, if we saw Clooney fail to break into Redwall, there is no chance this guy's getting in. Um, and, yeah. and there's just so, so, so many things like that where we get watered down versions of villains that we've seen before. We get watered down versions of storylines that we've seen before. I mean, what are the um oh gosh their names eluding me now the people with the smelly stuff in the swamps oh i don't even remember something with an f right well i guess this kind of makes my point for me though. flitch eyes um, the flitch eyes yeah what what are the flitch eyes if just a less interesting version of the painted ones yeah um yep. what what are what is gray patch if not just Clooney light um the, there's so many chances for cool things to be off to the races here. And we get little flashes and little moments with them. And then Jake's just moves on and it's weird. We get some of the best ship names I've ever read before <laughs> in a book for ships that have little to no screen time in this book. Why are there not like actual naval battles that happen? Like, why isn't there more seafaring that happens? It's so the the promise of this book has so much potential, but what is delivered is so bare bones. Like we go back to this formula that Jake's has 
kind of repeating the quest that we saw in Mossflower and Redwall. And don't get me wrong, if that's what you like to have in your books and a formula, it's fine. But why couldn't we do that on the open seas? Why did we have to do half of this on land? And with characters like you're right, the painted ones are just a level up version of the flitch eyes. There's just, it, it really just, it, it, make, it makes me, um, I'm frustrated at Jake's because we can see he's a great storyteller, great writer with things like the long patrol. And so I just don't know why he, it's like he had these drafts that he kind of um, Frankenstein together to make this book, right? Like it just feels like it's two different stories that are competing against each other that um, one is way more interesting than the other. And we get these little snippets of things that, that I think are great. I I uh I haven't really said this on mic before, but uh Bobo's story reminds me a lot of something that you would read in like Robin Hobbs books. Like it's it has mm. that kind of like emotional like pull to it and um and craft to it that seems like that's something that could come from her. So it's just like <laughs> frustrating when instead we get this, I don't know. But but then <laughs> that gets balanced out with a moment where lizards show up in the strange forest and they start following the adventurers and this is so creepy why are they just standing there watching them what is the big reveal gonna be about this oh there's no reveal they they literally just follow them for a little bit and then mariel leaves it's a such a cool setup and then jake's just doesn't like chooses not to do anything with it and it's so frustrating over and over because we keep getting those moments i i feel like this book is best characterized by like just half efforts at tropes and ideas as opposed to like full-throated narrative and it it becomes increasingly dissatisfying because really the only coherent narrative i think the book delivers to us is the assault on Redwall. That's the only part of the book that feels like it has any real consistency. And it's really unfortunate because we've already seen that with Clooney. And and the Clooney campaign was so much (laughs) deadlier, you know, so much more threatening than what Grey Patch can, can put together. And as much as I love Grey Patch's campaign because I do think that it's a really solid campaign against Redwall. It just feels like it can't escape Clooney's shadow and it's centered in a book that has no sense of identity elsewhere. As much as this is supposed to be Mariel's Redwall or Mariel's story, it continues to feel to me anyway like this is more and more maybe Ron Blade's story. I mean, whose I story? Is right. it? Yeah, I I really think it is probably Ron Blade. Oh, because <laughs> or or a cameo of the Joseph Bell. Like, I really don't know. You, even if you listen back to our last episode, episode three, when we wrap up book three, we kind of talk about how the wrap up seems like it's the most lacking one that we've read just simply because so much of the wrap up are things that seem so inconsequential to the overall Redwall story. Um, I like what you said, Trevor, where you said that the assault on Redwall is a lesser Clooney. Um, you like we saw the Clooney do it better. I would argue 
Mariel's quest we saw 10 times better with Martin. The characters mm-hmm. are so much more engaging in Mossflower. This cast of characters, Dand and I was actively rooting to die because that would be more interesting than whatever mm-hmm. he was doing. And like, well, you know, Martin and the cast with Martin is so much more compelling than Mariel and Dury and Tarquin. Like it just, it, we had a better cast with that. And so it's hard to, it's hard to be invested in this cast when there's things that are lacking. Um, I think too, like <laughs> we're going to keep coming into these tropes, right? Like there's, there's going to be a quest. There's going to be a puzzle search. There's going to be a, an assault on Redwall. There's going to be this, there's going to be that, you know, I think that Jake's comes into the same cycle over and over again, but, but perhaps none of this works here because we've just seen it all done better. You know, we saw the quest done by Matthias in the last book in what I felt was a very coherent campaign. You know, Matthias goes looking for his kid and as much as we can talk about how much more we wish Matameo did or, or, you know, this, that, or the other thing. I feel like Matthias visits these same, almost these same beats, you know, moment for moment. Um, and yet it seems more cohesive because his goal is better tethered to the overall story. So I think I went on the record last time we did an episode um, with, um, Matameo and just how I felt like that main quest wasn't as edited down as I would have wanted it to be. Uh, there, there were a lot of weird sprawling side quests, a lot of characters doing random things that we wouldn't have expected them to do just kind of for the sake of moving the story along. But even then, I still stand by that was a good book because even in the wake of all those kind of odd steps, we at least had a solid end goal that we Mm. knew we were fighting for and that we knew we were trying to get to in Act 3. Matthias is trying to save his son. And even if Matthias goes charging into that cave uh, for, like, no reason, (laughs) um, we can sort of kind of write that off as, like, okay, well, he's just mad. He's trying to get his son back. He's just, like, he's recklessly going in to try to salvage him. That's what I was missing here with Mariel of Redwall the whole time because it felt like the characters lost sight of what the endgame was supposed to be. It felt like Jake's lost sight of what the endgame was supposed to be. And in the absence of any sort of a grander picture that he was trying to paint, all of the kind of flaws of these misadventures, they just stand out that much more roughly. Well, before we move on to, I think we're good at a good spot where you could probably move on and do a ranking for the villains. But before we move on, I kind of put a pin on this, I think in, in uh, episode three, um, it started in episode two where I had the theory that Martin's ghost is associated to the tapestry. And what my basis for that is that in Redwall, the tapestry is being stolen and Martin calls out to Matthias that he's being stolen. And so that leads him to go on to do this. Jake's completely destroys this theory in this book because the tapestry is not completed at all. And so I said that it had to maybe be something else. And I 
now I my new theory is that it's the sword, it's rat death, and that's the association with with Martin because the rat death is in um, Redwald at this time. Um, it's given to Danden. Danden and Mariel have a, a Martin experience when they are uh, in the quicksand or in the swamp. I can't remember which one it was. And so my new theory is that it's associated, the spirit is associated with the sword. Um, if you're listening to this and that's not, <laughs> you have a different theory, I'd love to hear it. But that was something that was also kind of frustrating is that it seemed like even Jake's was somewhat inconsistent um, in this, what do you call this? A deus ex machina now? Like it's just I... something that happens. Um, the soft magic kind of uh, gets a little softer. I have thoughts. <laughs> Let's you hear it. I'll follow you. <laughs> I so I I've been thinking about this myself. Like what what is the magic that inspires um, uh, Martin? Because he seems to be the only one. Well, not the only one. He's not the only one with this kind of like magical presence. But I think he's the only one who manages to kind of like trans, like like step out of time a little bit. And and I think that it's not necessarily tethered to an object. I don't think it's tethered to the tapestry. I don't think it's tethered to the sword. I think it is actually Martin's spirit as it transcends from his like mouse body. And and I think it's wrapped up in the way that Jake's weaves magic into this world. I've been trying to put my finger on what is the magic of this world? Because there's clearly magical elements that show up, even though I think Jake's himself like insists there's no real magic, right? But we know there's a form of magic that is very strong in this world, and it is the magic of prophecy. And so far, we've seen a couple of different kinds of characters that are able to tap into this prophetic language, if you will. But a lot of that prophetic language comes from the badgers and badger lords themselves. Salamandastrin is full of this kind of badger magic um, as badgers themselves can tap into the blood wrath and very few characters can do that. This is the first book that really explicitly explains that the blood wrath is a thing and it is a thing that almost all badgers have the ability to kind of tap into. But we also know from the previous book, this is something that Matthias can do. We can look back into Moss Flower and see parts of Moss Flower where I think Martin can go into this blood wrath. I think we're going to see it again when we come to Martin the Warrior, where we get a much more established view of Martin's life and establish that he can tie into this blood wrath. And if you remember at the very end of Moss Flower, where Martin is so close to death after his fight with Sarmina, he is conversing directly to Bor the Fighter, who um had passed on you know after his fight with like his rat people so i think that in this weird liminal space between life and death martin and and um 
bore, you know, kind of have this conversation. And I think that's meant to kind of establish that Martin inhabits the same weird magical space as like the Badger Lords do. And I think that sets him apart as a character or a creature out of time. And so his spirit is able to, you know, return in these prophetic visions, these prophetic moments where his presence is needed. I feel like Martin's spirit is tied in with this same prophetic magic that we see elsewhere. And it's one of the reasons why he's able to speak to the characters of Redwall with whom he has like a kind of direct um, call it like a, a, a maybe not a religious, but like a direct kind of um, communal lineage. Um, but he's also able to, to uh, speak directly to the badgers and the badger lords too, who all, all of whom have this ability to like kind of trance into um, prophecy and like read prophetic language. Cause like even Joseph, right. Doesn't, know or understand the prophetic magic that he weaves into the bell when he crafts it. He crafts it according to what Ron Blade uh, tells him to, to craft. But Ron Blade's the only one in any of the company who understands what it is that it says. Um, I think... But Badger's Kabul, crafted the sword too, so couldn't it? Right. I think Kabul... Um, Gabul, you know, questions Joseph and Joseph explains a little bit of, of what is on the bell. But doesn't Joseph say to Gabul, like, if you want an answer, you're going to have to ask the Badger Lord that it was crafted for? Like, I think, I, so. I think Badgers just have this weird, um, you know, like, like connection to the flow of time. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what it is that gives them that nature. But I know that Martin was able to transition into that same magical space. And because of that, I think his spirit carries on forward. Um, and, and it's that spirit that, that you know, remains kind of tethered to this, this magical space. So if anything, I feel like, you know, the tapestry that is woven, if the tapestry have, has power, it is a power inspired by Martin's proximity to this kind of badger prophetic magic. Same with the sword, like you just pointed out. The sword was crafted by a badger lord and crafted from the stuff of stars, you know, given a kind of craftsmanship that is supernatural in nature. And I think that tethers it back to the same magic, the same, you know, font of, of um, kind of prophetic uh language and it's also a reason why matthias you know can do these same things because we see that matthias is um the kind of reincarnation of martin and matthias's line from that point forward carries that same kind of prophetic blood that's a much more complete answer than i was coming up with um <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I, I so, like my uh, dumb dumb theory just because it's easier to understand uh, for sure. But mark my words, by the last book that we read, I will have a complete and precise thesis as to how this magic works. Don't you worry. Um. So what I've got is I think that 
the Red Wallers especially, and my my whole theory revolves around the Red Wallers. The Badgers, if I start considering the Badgers, they throw a wrench in anything in my head right now. So like, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll just consider them separate entities. Um, but I think the Red Wallers, and especially like the the deceased Red Wallers, um, kind of subscribe to the idea that a little piece of us is left in anything that we leave behind when we pass on from this world. Um, I think because of that, Martin's sword carries a little bit of his spirit in it. The tapestry to memorialize him carries a little bit of his spirit. Anything that helps people remember what happened and remember the people before them's stories, I think they draw power out of that and through that um and we see that in uh, obviously the martin stuff as the big ways like he can literally come speak to people through the sword like bring me bring me to dandon as the sword like but please don't um go to go two rooms over just hand it to mariel just hand it to mariel <laughs> no okay <laughs> um but we also see it in a lot of the smaller stuff that's going on too, like um, these these fetch quests around the Abbey uh, when they're looking for the directions to um, Gloomhaven, um, when they were looking for that. And there was the big statue of a former abbot down there holding a book. And um, the, the book sort of kind of like speaks to them a little bit while they're in the chamber and not directly. It's not like a big Martin thing, but you've got characters just happening to stumble onto the thing, exactly the thing that they're looking for as they run their paws over once. Gomp's flute. That's exactly what Gomp's flute is. And that's the only contribution Dandon has, right? That's a good one too. Um, But I, I think Jake's is leaning into that a little bit, just with the power of story, the power of remembering um, and being able to draw some, like inspiration plus one out of items like that. I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I, again, I, I continue to evolve my evaluation of what's going on. I, I just don't get the sense that the red wallers ever have the same kind of knowledge, uh, the, the direct kind of knowledge that I think Martin or any of the, so-called you know descendants of martin have because i feel like you know sometimes these characters will create like a riddle or they'll create a guide like you know you got to follow this path or something you know watch for for this character or this thing to come from the north but then they're like well i don't know what that means you know and they just kind of shrug it off and walk away from it um even though it's clear like they are appropriate conduits you know for this information um but they don't have the same kind of instinctual understanding as you know characters like i think martin clearly did and uh the the badger lords especially the badger lords i think are conduits for this information and then are also kind of the only ones who can adequately or accurately decipher their own lore almost you know kind of instantaneously we'll see how much of that holds up when we read salamandastrin um <laughs> yeah we need to get it i feel like we all need to get a few more books in before we yeah get a, i thought i was on the right track i really did and then jakes comes in and he <laughs> shakes up my theory with this book Ugh, he's he's uh 
a guy that can really get under your skin. Uh, oh, sorry. I thought we were talking about Danden for a second. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> before we talk about Danden, the great Danden rant of this review episode, uh, let's let's jump over to the villains and let's talk about those. I, I can lead us off. All right, let's get into this. So the two big villains that we highlighted here were uh, were Gabool and Graypatch. Um, just a reminder about the scale, because I think that's going to come into play in this conversation more than ever before. Um, we said that if we rank somebody a zero, that means they are entirely forgettable. If we ranked them a five, then they were fine. You'd read another book about them. And 10 is an absolute icon. Um, so with that in mind, I gave Gabool and Graypatch both fives. I don't, they're not particularly inspiring villains. I said already in this episode that part of my problem with them is that neither of them are particularly threatening at any point. Um, at no moment in the story did I actually think Gabool was going to win. Um, I don't even know what Kabul would have been trying to win in this story. And I certainly didn't think Graypatch was going to win by scaling the Abbey walls. Um, that said, there, there was some interesting stuff going on in the siege. Graypatch had a couple of ideas that were interesting, at least. Uh, Gabool's descent into madness was basically just Sarmina all over again. But he did, <laughs> again, have a couple of moments where like he's got a scorpion pit. You get points for a scorpion pit in my book. <laughs> um, I just wish we had spent more time with either of them or that the threat had been established a little bit more with either of them. You know, as you're talking, I think I downgraded my feelings about Gabool. Initially, I had rated him like a seven. You know, a character that I felt was memorable enough that I absolutely would have wanted to return to him. Like I could have used a whole other book with Gabool. But I think on reflection of this book, I don't know that I can rate him more than a five because I feel like how much more could I use another another book of Gabool if I don't feel like we even got a book of Gabool to begin with? Um, he's such a strong, such a <laughs> he, <laughs> he's such a strong character in book one. I really, really enjoyed his presence and I felt like they were setting him up for the kind of character who would be an absolute icon. You know, I think of the iconic characters to me and it's like Clooney and Slagar are the two best that we've had so far. I love Sarmina, but I feel like Gabool was primed to be one of those iconic characters. And then he just disappears for two thirds of the book. And we're left, you know, with just the dangling scrap of an idea that never comes together. So yeah, I, I feel like, in the grander scheme of things, I'm going to forget him just like I forgot the rest of the book for 20 years. Yeah, I ranked him a little bit higher than you guys did. I ranked him as a six. Um, and one of the reasons for that is I, I think Gabool is interesting. And 
Um, like you said, in the first book, I think that he has a lot going from him. I like how crafty he is. I like how he, um, you know, kind of pins the second captains against each other as a, as a way to kind of create some mutiny and dissent among the sea rats. Um, and then I was generally shocked when he stabbed Ron blade. I, I thought for a second that Ron blade would die from that stab. And so I, I, I admit that I think that he's threatening in the book. It's just that we don't get enough of him. So I put him as a six, a little bit more than a five for you guys. I'd like to see more of him. Like I do think he's interesting, um, but it's hard to give him a score any higher than that, just purely because of his absence. You know, major props to your point, Colin, major props to Gabool for actually managing to stab a a main character and really, you know, get in there. (laughs) I think the only other character who's managed to get really that close was Slagar. I mean, Slagar. I thought you were going to say Sarmina because she almost kills Martin. Oh, you know what? You're right. Sarmina almost kills uh, Martin, but Slagar to his credit too, uh, nearly kills Matthias. Like he almost gets away with it. Yeah. Now I'll go ahead and start with gray patch. Um, this round, um, I have gray patch really high up. I have gray patches an eight. And the reason for that is, I know. So just looking at our chart, I'm ranking gray, gray patch in the same rank that I put Sarmina and Bane from, from Moss flower. So, um, he's definitely up there. The reason why is that one of the things I really liked about this book was the whole um, the whole conquest of the Abbey that uh, with Grey Patch, and he goes from being this secondary character to stepping right out in front of Gabul. I really think that he's the villain of this story. Um, he isn't as threatening as some of these other villains that we've seen, but he does something that the other um, villains haven't really done, and that is to absolutely stump the red wallers with the the fire mortars that kind of ability to, to to kind of stop them where they're at where they're relying on the technology brought in from the long patrol i think is really cool like i like that jake's even kind of writes this with um i think it's um oh man i'm so bad with names tonight i think it's cliff not cliff who's the otter that uh flag with flag he yep. He even writes him um, the, his strength and him drawing the bow, and he's not even able to hit him from the distance. And so I really like this building up of Gray Patch, where you kind of get up towards the top, where he's like, he's got a fleet, he's got a ship, he's taking over. Um, and then we have this slow, kind of slope down into his descent where he's standing around and he only has a few men or, or rats with him. And he's like, what happened to my whole fleet? Like we've been whittled down to just a few. And he kind of sets into this panic because of it. I think it's a great arc for a story. I really, this is probably one of the highlights I have for, um, for Muriel of Redwall. I really liked gray patch and I would love to read a whole story where he is seafaring and he is taking conquest and, He's going from a secondary, you know, in command all the way up to being a menace on the high seas. I think that'd be really cool to read. I agree with you. I ranked him pretty highly, too. I'm going to let William come back in and smash our hopes and dreams here in a second. But I feel like Grey Patch didn't need to be threatening to be engaging. And... I felt as I continued to read about Grey Patch's exploits that, of course, he was not as manic or as threatening as some of our villains previously, 
but I felt like his story was still deeply engaging and thoroughly satisfying in what was otherwise a pretty dissatisfying book. Like he had a pretty effective campaign against Redwall. And even if we know that he's not going to make it, that doesn't make the threat to Redwall, I think, any less real in the minds of the Redwallers. And me as a reader really wanted to see more of that engagement. I loved his whole story arc, especially as it combines with the story of the long patrol. And I think that if there's any one part of the book that really does stand out to me, it includes gray patch. So yeah, I, I think he's a seven for me. He's a character that I don't know is going to be up there in the total icon category, but he's absolutely a character that I wouldn't mind referring back to, or if he were the big bad of, you know, a duology or something like that, I would be really invested in his story. Bring us home, William. You're, you're selling me on him a little bit. I, <laughs> I might have to bump this five up to a six. Um, my biggest problems with him mostly revolved around, like I said, him not, him not really being a threat at any point. That's a good point about the fire throwers. I hadn't really thought of it from that angle. If the long patrol wasn't there and it had just been him with his fire throwers attacking Redwall, okay, he might have won in that case. Um, so that's interesting to think about. But then I keep going back to, I, I don't really know what differentiates him from, let's say, Big Fang. Uh, or mm. any of Grey Patch's other like second in commands. Like he he just seems so much like the dog that caught the car um, <laughs> throughout so much of this book. He he doesn't have a plan. He doesn't know what he's attacking Redwall for, really. Um, it's a big place with big walls, and yeah, maybe they could live there for a while, but his thinking never goes any like any beyond that. And it's clear that even if he did take Redwall over, they wouldn't survive there for any length of time because Redwall requires that you're like eating the food from the land or, you know, enslaving all the people around the land like Sarmina did or, you know, any sort of mm -hmm. cunning or anything like that. And it just it, it felt like if he got into Redwall, it would have just been him getting the Dark Queen all over again, where it would end up capsized in a river somewhere. And like, that, I will say, <laughs> I, I love that you point that out about Big Thing because it's like it could have really been anyone who great, you know, could have been Gray Patch, it could have been Big Big Thing. But I also think, I think Gray Patch might have won if it wasn't for Big Thing and some of the other guys because you know the whole ploy in order to try to get into the Red Wall was foiled because of of other people in the group. Um, the descent of uh, the Dark Queen was because of other people in the group. Like it's almost like him coming into power was his downfall because he was surrounded <laughs> by incompetence. But I think in a different story, and maybe I'm just making up things, but I think in a different story, Gray Patch could have turned into Clooney. You know what I mean? He could have mm. been. You know, it's it's kind of like we're seeing an early version of Clooney, and before he gets to his ruthlessness, but. Um, 
you bring up some really good points. I think that's a very fair score. Um, I think that he's definitely something that's a little bit more memorable about this book. Um, and I also may have bumped my score up just a little bit because my scores for the heroes are terrible. So <laughs> we talk about good characters. I, I do have a question because so far we're three for three of these villains being killed. <laughs> like environmental kills we've been calling them um you know like not an actual axe to the face or anything like that i mean do we feel like gray patch is just dispatched like any other vermin um does that play Uh, into maybe some of the reason why we don't want to rank him as highly because he doesn't get that environmental kill instead he's killed by oak tom if there was any any uh what's it called defense against me saying that gray patch is the villain it's that he doesn't get an environmental death he gets an epic death though being stabbed in the back by big uh it, who's it uh tom big tom oak tom, tom, yeah. oak tom excuse me yeah and um jake's kind of writing that his corpse is you know washed up days later with the with the spear in the back i think is so cool and that's the kind of death that we want to see with the main villains, right? But we don't see it because you can't have the hero kill the villain, apparently, in Jake's in Jake's eyes. So if you're if you, you know, are trying to <laughs> spam me on Instagram saying your theory, you know, he's, he's not the villain, I'm gonna I'm gonna say he's not the villain, but he gets an epic villain death. Okay, but I I'm going to throw it back to y'all's episode three for a second and like heap some praise onto the pair of you. Um, I thought that was what was so brilliant about y'all's take on Oak Tom being the one to throw that spear because all at once it gives us a lot of things that we've been looking for for four books. And going back to things I liked about this book, this was so satisfying (laughs) we finally had one of the big bads not just like take an arrow in the knee and bleed out or anything like that but he gets obliterated (laughs) by a spear in the back as he's running away and it's like even if gray patch wasn't that inspiring of a big bad he was still a big bad for this book and even if oak tom wasn't truly one of the main red wall characters the whole time he he wasn't from the abbey proper he was from the wilds around the abbey which gives him the the gumption to throw this spear having it all come to a head like that was a like throw the book up in the air and celebrate moment (laughs) because somebody finally got just offed in a way that was not accidental that was not instant like incidental it was deliberate and it was painful for him and someone got like their comeuppance (laughs) at the hand of of a hero not the hero but a hero for the record the person who said that and pointed that out was trevor if you listen to me i say (laughs) i thought it was lame that he you know that that it was Oak Tom and Trevor comes out with this this incredible insight. And I've said it before on the podcast before. 
I may not agree, but that's the right answer because that is the right <laughs> answer. For sure. I mean, I'll tell you, there there are a few moments in this book that just stand out to me as like the epic cinematic. Like if I had to sell a movie studio on like, let me make one of these movies, please. That would be the scene I would adapt because it is so wrought with tension and it is so wrought with meaning and significance in my head and uh, like i can i can visualize that babbling brook sounding <laughs> underneath the drum roll of oak tom delivering you know his his kind of final words to gray patch i just absolutely love that scene and credit to jakes for creating such a cinematic masterpiece of a, a literary scene i loved it now, with all that praise, it only makes sense for us to transition to uh, an absolute butcher of characters, which is the heroes of this story. <laughs> we have to talk. Now, we uh, when we talk about our heroes, I, I want to uh, make sure that we're kind of clear about this. We're picking out the main well, who we believe are the main heroes of this story. I think that this book just has some good heroes like Tarquin, um, uh, General Clary. Um, Rosie, uh, what's her hun Rosie? Like we have really good characters in this book. It's just, they're not the main characters. So as we go through these numbers, just know that this there's good characters here. And I've said that the whole podcast so far, or this whole episode is Bobo. I think is a great character in this book, mm. but unfortunately they don't make it to the list. We're only going to be focusing on Mariel and Danden. <laughs> we have to save Danden for last. Um, <laughs> But who wants to start with Mariel? I want to take offense at the fact that you're leaving Hun Rosie off this list. Because <laughs> clearly Hun Rosie is the fairest hair <laughs> in all the land. Yeah. Oh, Rosie the Hun, you're certainly the one. I bet my bolly life with your cute little nosy, beautiful Rosie, you'd make a lovely wife. How how are we just passing that up? <laughs> I was <laughs> it's because if she was on the list, we'd have to put Tarquin on the list. And I think you'd get a low score because of just how crazy he is for her. Like how desperate <laughs> he is for her. I got to say, you know, for a book that has such a lackluster heroes, there were so many secondary characters that I came to absolutely love I mean, Han Rosie, Tarquin, I, the, the whole long patrol, any one of these hairs, I would take a bullet for them. But I also loved, um, oh, <laughs> and of course I've forgotten his name, forgotten his name. It's not Dinny. Dury? Dury. Dury. Yeah, the hedgehog. I, I feel like Dury, the more I read Dury, the more I was like, I love this character. I love this character. Um, Burgo, the, the stupid mole who eats all of the garlic and is complaining about how much it smells. I love that character. I love yeah. Bobo. I felt like Bobo was such a great, great character. I love the WWE owl who just shows up. <laughs> I just feel like there's this rich, you know, tapestry of different characters. By the way, I really want to write a whole side story about uh moss flowers underground wrestling ring uh because we've got so many great characters to draw from but i yeah i feel like in a, a 
book with just so many different characters that are this, again, this rich tapestry of great side characters. Um, what a bummer <laughs> that Mariel and Dandin are the two uh. that, that head this book up. I rated Mariel a six out of 10 because I felt like book one Mariel was like, I was all for, I was so into this barbarian rage character. She reminds me of my wife to an uncomfortable degree. Um, Just like get out of my way. This is my pond. I'll whack you with my gull whacker. If you get near me, my name's storm. And that's my attitude. I feel like book one, Mariel was so great. And I wanted to pursue that character. And there are flashes of that character in book three at the very end that I felt was pretty worthy. But I felt like the moment that Storm recognizes that she's actually Mariel, all of the wind just flies out of her sails. And so my six is based on the strength of the Storm character and the promise of who that character could have been. But much like Gabool, you know, it's like, I don't know, how how ready am I for another book with this character if we barely even got a book with this character to begin with? Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I give her a five, so just a little bit lower than yours. But that is based off of exactly what you're saying. If it if we were ranking um, Storm Goldwacker different from Mariel, I think she'd be like an eight or nine. Like she is so much better at the beginning of this book and so much more interesting. I love this scene where she comes up and she sees the Dibbins playing with the ball and she just whacks it out of the Abbey. And she's like, this is a great <laughs> game. What are we doing next? Like that's the kind of attitude that's so fun in this. And then she has her dream. She tells her story. She wakes up and she's like sanitized. Like as a character, there's nothing of interest that kind of comes from her from that. She does hold rat death a few times and has some moments where she's kind of being a hero, but it, it seems like such a stark difference than who we got in that first book, which is why I gave her a five. So I think if we're talking about how great she is at storm, it has to be balanced out by just how forgettable she is in the, in book, book two and three. I agree with everything y'all are saying, and I have absolutely nothing to add. I gave her a five. So instead I'm going to use my time to talk about two other people that deserve to have the time given to them. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, the Dibbins in this book were amazing. I want an entire book of Dibbins misadventures where they accidentally save Redwall over and over and over. That was amazing to me. Chopping um, with knives. the kitchen knives. And the, knives. Yeah. I want to make like a daddy daycare uh, spinoff, <laughs> but it's just Basil and Cheek trying to like raise the Dibbins because I think it'd be the funniest thing. Like I, I, I'm with you, uh, William, that it is so the Dibbins are a lot of fun in here. And it's like we had Cheek and at first Cheek was annoying, but then you kind of like Cheek. And that's the same thing happening here. The Dibbins are annoying, but there's so much to like about them. Um, I love at the very end of the book with the Dibbins and Ron Blade. That's such a good moment, too, where he's kind of like trolling them a little bit. There's so much <laughs> to like about him. 
Yeah, that's the other character I want to throw some props on. I know we've mentioned him a couple of times as we go through, but just Ron Blade deserves to be the second person in our conversation so much more than Danton. Um, going back to our episode zero, I said that the like species I was most excited to talk about in these books were the badgers because it's so interesting to me to see how you take something that's that overpowered in the world of Redwall and just build shackles for it or build little twists onto it so that they stay interesting as characters. And I think Ron Blade is one of the first great examples we see of that where Jake's takes all of that unbridled power and says, you know what? Actually, I'm not going to handicap him at all. He's just going to destroy everything. And that's going to be the problem you have to solve. Could he kill this entire fleet by himself? Yes. Figure it out. Dude. (laughs) Stay out of his way. (laughs) That scene where the dead or or the dying rat explains what happened and explains Ron Blade in full battle armor, just emerging out of the water like some kind of weird sea monster. You know, like that scene is incredible and even before that the scene right before that where he's waiting on the beach and it's misty all around him and he's just <laughs> standing there with a sword waiting for the ship to dare to come up to shore because he knows it's coming it's like, he's already oh, in his blood wrath he's already like he's like like charging up in his blood wrath about to just kill everyone yeah i think it, that, that that awesome moment it's like it's such a, a, a cool high for this book and then when we get to the lulls of this book, I'm literally looking over at Salman Dastra and th- saying, thinking like, do I just start the next book? Like, do I just get in the stuff that I want to get into? Because <laughs> <laughs> I know where I want to go with this. Let's just get there. <laughs> okay. I think it's that time in the episode where we talk about Danden. Oh boy. We got to keep it somewhat oh. brief because we, we oh. don't have too much time. <laughs> but I'll I, start because I'll be super brief. <laughs> I kind of um, want to let Colin just do a 20 minute rant. And <laughs> yeah, this is going to be the longest rant in, in, in Redwall for sure. Uh, in, in books and badger history. I dislike Danden so much because all the charm of Gomp is completely stripped out of Danden. He is supposed to be the descendant of Gomp, and he has zero charm. We get an introduction of Danden at the very beginning of this book where Danden is essentially saying, I don't want to learn Redwall history. Who gives a crap? Like, you know what I mean? He's just like completely disregards any kind of um, history for Redwall. He kind of comes off as a punk. He doesn't like storm until she takes a bath and then he's horny for her afterwards like there's just so much that's so unlikable about Danden and he's so forgettable for taking the spotlight for Mariel that he just does not deserve any recognition on this list quite honestly I I think my biggest complaint about this book was Danden and if you listen to the last three episodes we don't really talk about Danden much at all we really just talk about everything else and so much of this book does revolve around Danden like he's this weird central hero he's he's supposed to be like Matthias I suppose is what Jake's is going from for but he has no charm 
uh, he doesn't have any of the charm of Gomp. He doesn't have any of the the charisma of Matthias or stoicism, I guess, of Matthias. Um, he's just, I, I think he's the worst character that we've seen in Redwall. I really do. Um, he he doesn't seem like he has much or any kind of leadership. Um, man, I just really did not like Danded at all in this book. And because of that, I'm putting him as a one. I don't know if we can give zeros. If we can give zeros, I will update mine to a zero. But I do not want to read any more of Danden. Guys, if we have another book that Danden's in that I have to read, just I might be drinking whiskey through it. Like, I just don't <laughs> like him at all. That's my rant. It wasn't 20 minutes. I think I cut it back, you know, good, good enough to just get it all out there. Now I can like, you know, sleep peacefully tonight but William am I, am I mistaken does he show up again in Joseph the Bellmaker oh I forgot about that let me look I am coincidentally going to be sick that week when we read that book because <laughs> I just don't want to do it I'll reread Mossflower while you guys do that because man Danden he is Gaunt's descendant right I'm not making that up no he right? is you're you're totally right yeah Hey, guess what? He's coming back. Oh, I'm so out. I'm so out. I don't. I I don't want any more Danden. I don't. Unless he has, you know, the the lowest ranked hero that I had prior to this was was Matameo. And my complaint with Matameo was that I think he also took he did the whole backseat thing. But I think Matameo had some moments, um, some interesting character moments. I think those are completely gone with with Danden. I really don't see anything about Danden that would want that I'd be compelled to want to read a book about him. Well, let me let me pitch it this way then, because I'm in complete agreement with Danden in this book. He's a one. There's no redeeming qualities to him. He's a nothing character that does nothing but it take away from what could have been fun about Mariel. Um, we've seen a nothing character get a glow up after a little bit of a time jump before with cornflower. So uh, that's my true. hope, because I don't remember the bellmaker very well. My hope is that a little bit of time is going to pass. Jake's is going to sit on this character some, and he's going to come back and he's going to realize some of this potential and redeem him some in our eyes. And that is my, that is my woefully optimistic hope. Dan didn't sucks. <laughs> That's your review. Just Danden sucks. That's, that's my it. review. He's a one. Oh my god. He's a one star character. I I, I don't know. Uh, let me tell you a story. This is dumb, but it's funny. I I promise I have a point. So, uh, several years ago, my mother uh, kind of bequeathed me her diaries um, from her pregnancy, and. <laughs> Kala knows this story. So um, in the diaries, she would take stock and account of, you know, all of the, the many things that she kind of experienced uh, raising me and then my my two siblings. Um, somewhere around when my sister was born, um, my mother's diaries really started to pick up on just like this kind of marveling over my sister's character um, as she was kind of growing from a baby into a toddler. My mother was just really struck by the, the difference between 
me and my sister. And there was one particular day, one passage that was really, really funny because she wrote flowingly about all of the many strange intricacies of my sister's mood and personality and how dynamic a character my sister was. And I featured nothing in that day except the very last line of the diary entry, which said, and Trevor fell into a well, and that was it. (laughs) The funny thing that you're kind of leaving out, it's been a while since I've read this, but I remember we discovered this together. I think the intricacies was about uh, our sister learning how to drink from a straw. (laughs) You had a way more eventful day that day. That is right. <laughs> that was my mother's preoccupation was like how my sister was, you know, drinking from a straw and and this big marvelous kind of revelation of my sister's uh, spirit, you know, whatever it was. Uh and and I warranted one line of about and Paul Trevor fell into a fountain. And... <laughs> that I hope you is, don't mind. That is Danden's I... story, right? Like Yeah, 100%. <laughs> And Danden fell into the bog. That's it. I, There's I hope you else. don't mind. I may have pre-ordered a gravestone with that on it for before <laughs> you. Just saying, and Trevor fell into a well. Yep. A little morbid, but <laughs> that story is way better than anything we could talk about with Danden. I think that's the perfect, perfect way to end um, that hero's ranking. I, I'm really curious to hear what Tiff has to say. Um, I think we should circle back to this <laughs> once she's available to join and uh, and plug in some of her numbers. Okay, so let's get to the book of Meryl, Meryl Redwall. This is going to be, I think, our most divisive ranking as a group, but then also I think this is our most divisive ranking in the Redwall fandom or community because... This book is rated very highly. I mean, I'll start. Um, I think that this is a really polarizing book for a lot of people. I know that um, just a a casual survey, if you ask people what their favorite Redwall books are, um, there's a handful of names that kind of come up. But a lot of people say that it's Mariel of Redwall. Um, And I can kind of see why to a certain extent. This is the first book that we really kind of get to a sea adventure. Um, Corsair adventures start to show up more and more in the series from here on out, I believe. And I think a lot of that is because, um, you know, Jake's was a, a, a seafarer for a time. Like he was really, really interested in boats. So I think there's enough swashbuckling in this book um, to really entice those people that, you know, we're kind of looking for a kind of swashbuckling book. I rated this a seven. I don't think that it is the worst in the series. Um, I also don't think it's the worst book we've read so far in terms of some of its action. You know, like we've been discussing, I think that the secondary characters in this book are as good as any of the secondary characters in any of the other books we've read so far. Um, while it doesn't have the cast of something like Mossflower, I still love 
all of the Ron Blade stuff. I still love the Long Patrol. I still love Babo and Burgo and these other characters we've been talking about. I think that this book has the strongest act three of any of the books that we've seen so far. Um, I think it rivals for me what Madame Mayo managed to pull off with Malchoris. Um, I felt like there was this sweeping narrative at the end of the book that just I, I couldn't put down. I loved Grey Patch's end with Oak Tom. I loved the last stand of the Long Patrol. I loved the assault on Terramort Isle. And I feel like if we had taken out book two almost entirely, maybe left the Grey Patch stuff in, but taken out book two and that quest... This would be a much tighter and much more interesting feeling book. It's that middle part for me that just completely sucks any of the energy out and steals all of its momentum. So this is a, a seven for me. I I don't think I would mind coming back to characters like Ron Blade. I wouldn't mind coming back to... Um, some of this stuff. And when I think of what was really memorable in this book, it was absolutely the long patrol stuff. I, you know, 25 years or whatever, however many years after I first read this book, I still remember those feelings of that moment with the last patrol. I still remember the defense of Redwall, And I think that for me uh, makes this book a, uh, you know, still a, a worthy read and still something that I had a lot of fun with, even though I'm bitterly frustrated by certain parts of it. Okay. And then I'll jump in next. Um, prefacing me saying this number with, I, I consider this scale to be a scale of the Redwall books. I'm not considering this scale in the vein of like other like young adult series or anything like that. This is all just red wall against red wall against red wall. Um, and again, reminder of the scale, a one in our scale is bad. Like I don't expect to put any books at a one, um, maybe outcast of red wall when we get there, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, five is a good entertaining read, but it's clearly inferior to other entries for reasons. Uh, and 10 is, again, absolute icon. So with that in mind, I gave Mariel of Redwall a three. Um, I I do think it's inferior to the other three books that we've read. Anything that we find in this book to appreciate, I can think of another book that it was done better in. Just thinking about the three books that we've already read. Do you want a big emotional like journey to try to save somebody that means something important to you? Go read Madame Mayo. Do you want a really good Redwall tower defense? Don't read this. Go read Redwall. Do you want a really cool secondary cast of characters that are going to flesh out this whole universe for you? Go read Mossflower. Um, it, it's just an inferior book to all of the other three in such glaring ways and do you want corsair adventures we've got them coming up yeah <laughs> that's go the to thing. pearl of lutra go th there's other books coming up 
Tagarong, uh, right? Tagarong uh, um, a little bit, yeah. This is the first book in our read-through that if somebody I know was looking for an abridged version of the series, they want to read the whole series, but they don't want to read all 20 books or you know however many there are, uh, what are some that we can trim out? This is the first one I pull out because um, just, it just doesn't add anything that we needed mm. except for maybe like a, a cameo of the bell. Cool. I think you could just read the last book of this uh of Mariel of redwall i honestly think you could if you were trying to for some reason do an any percent speed run of all the redwall books i think that you could do that and still pass the test like because so much of the good things in this book happened in that last that last book um for me i put this as a seven um oh sorry i do not put this as a seven that's arbitrary <laughs> i put this as a five the reason i did that is uh and, and going back to some of my, my past rankings is i put Redwall as a six and so i'm really comparing it most against Redwall because i think Redwall, the overall pace of, of Redwall, the quest everything about Redwall is i think of better quality than the mushy middle that we see in in mario of redwall i think the characters are a lot more memorable but the highs of mario i think are some of the best that we've seen maybe not as good as moss flower but the long patrol babo um the excitement that we have around gray patch in my opinion those are all things that i think pay off so well with this book that um you know, I think it's I think it's really good. But then we have this quest, this mushy middle in it that all these books do better, kind of like what you guys are saying. So because of that, I drop it below Redwall. I have it at a five. I think that there's a lot of cool things in here, but I'm hoping the Long Patrol, you know, the book, The Long Patrol has more of what I love about this. I'm hoping that, you know, um, we see some more seafaring, like you're saying, in these other books. Like, I, I, it gets me more excited for the better Redwall that's out there. So because of that, that's why it's a five. So that is our official, unofficial ranking. We're going to have to put an asterisk on this because the whole crew is not here tonight. Um, so we might circle back to kind of talk about the, this ranking. So we're not going to give you the average score yet because we want to make sure that Tiff can have that conversation with us. Uh, before we add the average score. But that was Mariel Redwall uh, season four. I honestly can't believe that we're moving on to Salmondastrin. I am so excited for this next book. There's so much to look forward to here. Um, Trevor's already started it. And I, I'll have to <laughs> tell you, Trevor, I had to hold back to start it because I knew it would probably impact this rating <laughs> for this book. <laughs> but man, it's been on my desk for the past week. And I keep eyeballing it. I keep looking at it. You know, I reach over to to try to read a, a page or so. And then I'm like, no, you can't do it. You have to wait. <laughs> but here we are. We're going into season five. This, I think, is our most hyped. Um, we've had the most people actually reach out about this too. say like, hey, when are you going to get the Salmon Astrid? And so, <laughs> uh, we're like, well, we're going to be there soon. So I'm really, really excited about this book. That Literally, is the next uh, book, right? <laughs> I'm not crazy, right? That's yeah, it book? is. It is the next okay. one. And oh, and <laughs> I I'm surprised with myself a little bit. I remember virtually nothing of it. And I'm kind of kicking myself uh for that. At the same time, I'm like, thank goodness I remember nothing of this because I get to experience the joy of it 
almost completely fresh for the first time in like 25 years. That's awesome. That's why I'm going to give myself a roofie right at the end of finishing the book so that I forget <laughs> it so I can like read it. <laughs> That's a joke, kids. We're not doing that. It's a Arrested Development joke. All right, enough of that. What do you guys say we close this out? Well, if you guys want to support the show, the best way that you could do that is to um, rate us wherever you're listening to this. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, Google Casts, wherever, wherever it's at, uh, leaving us a star review or just saying you like the show, that helps out a ton. That helps us to get a lot more visibility with other people. And uh, we're trying to grow a community. So um, you can follow us on Instagram and threads at Books and Badgers. Um, that's with an N in between Books and Badgers. Check us out there. Um, feel free to send us any messages if you have suggestions for the show, questions you want to have answered. We try to do some fun um, things in the stories or polls or whatever over there. Um, you can also find us on threads at that same name, Books and Badgers. And then if you want to send us an email, you can do that at booksandbadgers at gmail.com. Uh, if you like these two guys and their awesome voices and their incredible insights, uh, you can tech, uh, check out Trevor at Slayhouse Presents. Um, you are past your 100th episode, 101 episodes. That's incredible. Well, probably 102 by the time you listen to this. Um, yeah, just rocking through those 103 even. <laughs> Whoa, dude, you're outpacing us by quite a bit. Uh, and then you can check out William Sterling over at uh, Killer Mediums. You got anything to plug for that? You got anything to plug for uh, Killer Mediums? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're good. Cool. All right. Well, <laughs> we, we got a little plug out. in at the beginning of the episode. I got that plug. Got to talk about yeah. a probable future episode. So that's great. Well, thank you so much for checking in and joining us on this big review episode. And we'll see you in season five. Thanks all.